Okay. If you if you brought your Bibles, turn to uh, to Hebrews chapter thirteen with me for a minute. We're in our our final hour, and how many people are here for the first study of Hebrews? Let that be a lesson to the rest of you. Um, no. Um, in those, uh, we've covered so far twelve chapters of the book of Hebrews. We started in chapter one, where the writer of Hebrews started to see how Jesus is better. That's the great one of the great themes of this book. Jesus is better, and he started right off the bat with the prophets of the Old Testament. How Jesus is better than them, and then he compared them to the angels, and how Jesus is better than the angels. And then in chapter three, it was Jesus is better than Moses. Not that anything was wrong with Moses. Moses was faithful with what he was given. He was faithful in the house. But Jesus was better than Moses because He's over the house. He's the master of the house. He was better than the angels because He was the master. Angels were the servants. He was better than the prophets because He was the exact representation of God. And so He was better than all of them. And then Jesus is better than Joshua because the rest that Joshua brought them into, into Canaan, is, doesn't compare to the rest that Jesus gives to you and I. The abundant life that He talks about in John 10.10. 10. And then he compared Jesus as better than Aaron. Because the priesthood that Jesus has as a high priest is of the order of Melchizedek, which is greater than Aaron's priesthood. But then we saw that a new priesthood means there's a new covenant. And the new covenant is built on better promises, and better promises and better terms. And we saw what a covenant really means. And, and some of the promises are total forgiveness. Because Jesus entered into the holy holy, he's up in heaven, the heavenly tabernacle, and he offered the sacrifice by his own blood, and he sat down at the right hand of God. By one offering for all time, he has taken away your sins, and Father will remember them no more. But not only totally forgiveness, but now we've been made complete. We've been made perfect. We've been made righteous, and we're now sanctified. And that's all done. It's all complete. And so we've seen that and we, we, we read what, uh, what this wonderful book has been trying to teach us. And then we also saw that, that there's some warnings in there. There's five warnings. Warnings that are to live by faith. That's really what the warnings are over and over again. To not let this gospel, this wonderful news just pass you by, but to lay hold of it. To trust Jesus. To not, uh, to not falter and to enter into the rest of God. To not fail to enter in. And so to lay hold of that by again, by trusting in Jesus. And then there is the warning to go on to maturity. To push on in chapter 6. And then in chapter 10, not to turn your back on Him. Not to reject Him for something else. And not to trust in something else, but to trust in God. And then the verse, the passage we just saw right before the break in chapter 12. To abide in Him. To not deny the gospel, but to rest in Him. Twelve incredible, rich chapters on doctrine and theology. And absolutely incredible. I, I mean, I've enjoyed studying it because there's so much in there. It's so rich. And, and I feel like we've only just begun to scratch the surface looking at it. And now we come to chapter 13. The final chapter of this great book. And, and open your Bibles to chapter 13. I want you to notice some things about it. The style of which he's been writing. I mean, he has been going on to great detail, talking about things like the tabernacle and Melchizedek and who he is and the high priest and the covenant and the rituals and sacrifice. And then he comes to chapter 13 and he says, let the love of the brethren continue. 
Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are also in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Do you notice something? After going into great detail and great depth, he comes to chapter 13, and it's almost like a series of bullet points. There's no explanation. Just let the love continue. Don't neglect hospitality. Care for those who are hurting. Honor marriage. They're almost just one line. Says it, moves on. Says it, moves on. And, and I want you to notice here, he spends 12 chapters going into the depths of God and then one chapter on the practical application of it. And the book of Hebrews is not alone in this. And, and the, tomorrow when we start looking at the book of Galatians, you'll see the same sort of pattern. Five rich, incredible pass, or chapters on theology of what does it mean, law versus grace, the Abrahamic covenant versus the Mosaic covenant, uh, walking by the Spirit versus walking after the flesh, and then one chapter on practical application, a short chapter at that. You read through the book of Romans. There are 11 chapters, rich, rich theology, followed by four and a bit chapters of the practical application. Do you notice the pattern? There is a great emphasis on the person of Jesus, and then not so much on the principles. Again, the principles aren't bad, but do you see where the writers of the New Testament are leading us to? They're leading us to the person. They're leading us to Jesus. Because the more you understand the person, then the principles just fall into place. I was sharing this idea with a a friend of mine this last week, and he said, you know, that's a very dangerous way to live most of the time. You would never follow a person. Because no matter how wonderful that person is, that person is bound to fail. That person is bound to lead you down a ditch. And so whether it be the Apostle Paul, Billy Graham, myself, Jacqueline, if you follow a person, you're in trouble. Because no matter how wonderful the person is, the person still has got flesh. And they still walk after the flesh. And so what he's saying to me is you actually only want to follow the principles of that person. Because whereas that person may fail, their principles never will. And so you want to follow the principles. And he says, and then he, it dawned on me, he says, well, that's true except for one person. Because there's one person who will never fail you. And who's that person? Jesus Christ. He won't fail you. And so it began to dawn on him that maybe, yeah, we are to follow the person here. And I think that's really what, what the writer of Hebrews has done. He spent so much time on the person of Jesus and trusting in Jesus that the practical application it becomes obvious. There's no explanation really required now. He can just say it and move on. Because when you understand dependence and trust and who, who the heart of Father is and His heart towards you and His heart towards other people, you don't need to explain it. And so he just begins to move through chapter 13 rather quickly. You see, here's a a novel concept that I think the church has missed. Because the church today, we spend so much time talking on principles. That for most of the time, really, what the the sermons that I've heard, they just become another self-help message. What to do here, what to do there. Another motivational talk about this way of living and this style of living. And I often sit there wondering, when will I hear the name Jesus? I've sat through some sermons where Jesus' name was never mentioned. 
And that, that's troubling. That's troubling. If someone is teaching you how to live the Christian life and they're not mentioning Jesus, that's awfully troubling. Because you can't. See, here's a novel concept. Christianity is Jesus. It's who He is. He's the source. He's the life. We live from Him. It's all about Him. Christianity is Jesus. It's His life. And so this writer now, after spending 12 chapters explaining this, that Jesus is better, so live by faith, now he can address the practical application of it and what that looks like. And that's what he's going to do in chapter 13. So let's do that. Amen? So verse 1, let the love of the brethren continue. The Greek language is interesting. In, uh, in English, order matters in the sense of what's happening. So if I have Bob hit Sally, the order is important. Now I know Bob's the hitter and Sally's the poor person who got hit because of the order. Bob hit Sally. But in Greek, they're not bound to those restraints. It doesn't matter if Sally comes first or comes after. It's all based in how the, the words are conjugated that you can determine who's the hitter and who's the hittee. So the only order, only reason for order in Greek is the emphasis. So what's important? What do you want to emphasize? What's significant in the passage? And so order becomes their exclamation mark in essence. And so here when he begins chapter 13 in the practical application, what's the first thing he talks about? Love. Love one another. Because this is all that matters. In fact, everything is going to flow out of this. Let the love of the brethren continue. Let it go on. Don't let it stop. The word here for love is Philadelphia, which literally means brotherly love. That's why we call Philadelphia the city of brotherly love, because that's what Philadelphia means. And so this love here is the love that you would share with another family member. Now, that may mean all sorts of things depending on your family. Maybe when you hear love of a family member, you think of, well, does that mean I invite Jesus over to my house on Christmas? We yell and scream at one another and then don't talk to one another until next Christmas? No, that's not what it is. This is the love of, of intimacy, love between two people that actually like each other and get along. So let the love of the brethren continue. Meaning what? what? It's already been happening. It's not start loving them, it's let it continue. Meaning you've already been doing it, let it go on for how long? Keep going, going, going. It's love them now. 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 And keep loving them unconditionally. It's not love them as long as they treat you well. It's not love them as long as they're lovable. It's love them and love them and love them and just love them. Regardless of what they do, regardless of how they behave, love them. Well, then he goes to verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For, for by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. There's a danger that happens in many churches where we form a bit of what they call a holy huddle or cliques, where you just begin to get along with certain people and then you just become a closed group. And so then someone new comes in and they can't ever break into that holy huddle. Now, there's nothing wrong with getting together with people, with friends and those that you, know, you get along with. That's not the problem. What they're saying is invite others in. Because this life is meant to be shared with the whole world. 
So invite other people in. And he goes on to say, for some have even entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the passage in Matthew 25 where Jesus is talking about the end judgment again? And he invites people in and he says to some, you know, you have fed me when I was hungry. You clothed me when I was naked. You visited me in prison. You gave me something to drink when I was thirsty. And they look at him and they say, Lord, I I don't remember seeing you. And then his answer in verse 40 was, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of those, one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. See, Mother Teresa, someone asked her, why do you do the things you do? And she says, well, every person I meet in my orphanages or wherever I'm at, I say, that's Jesus. I'm going to love them because I see Jesus. And that's why she did what she did. She was loving that person because she just treated them like they were Jesus. And that's essentially what Jesus is saying. Whenever you love one another, it's you're loving who? Him. Because He's in them. So love them. Love others. Verse 3, remember the prisoners, as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Mike uh, Pinball Clemens, how many people know who he, who he is? He's a, he was a football player for the Toronto Argonauts. I, I loved him, uh, partly because he was five foot, playing a six-foot man's game. He was just this little, little guy. And maybe that was to his advantage because no one could see him. They didn't know where he was because these big giants were hiding him. And so, you know, he was, he was called Mike Pinball Clemens because he'd come and he'd bounce off people. He was so exciting to watch. And, and uh, he, he's a Christian and he, he's got some, a lot of wisdom, I think. Someone asked him to define team... And he says, team is this, I am you and you are me. That's his definition of team. I am you and you are me. Meaning when you are successful, I'm successful. But when you fail, I fail. When you're hurting, I'm hurting. When I have joy, you have joy. Whatever happens to you, happens to me. And I think this is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get at. If one person is suffering, we're all suffering. Think back to Paul's illustration about the body. How we're all different parts of the body. Some are hands, some are feet, some are kneecaps, some are the pinky, some are the big toe, some are the appendix. You know, there's, there's all sorts of different parts. But could you imagine saying, well, the hand is throbbing with pain and the knee going, well, that's, just, that's not me, I'm a knee. I don't feel any pain. Well, when the body's in pain, one part of the body's in pain, the whole body is in pain. And so what he's trying to say is, when one is suffering, go to him, because we're all suffering. Because I am you, you are me. This is something I try to teach married couples that come in. And it's interesting, you see them going at one another, and fighting one another. And so I begin to share this idea that you are, you are each other. I am you, you are me, you're one. Meaning every time you snap and you scream at that other person, you're only beating yourself up. When that person's hurting, you're hurting. When that person's successful, you're successful. I am you, you are me. That's the whole idea. Remember the prisoners. As though you're in prison with them. Because we're one body. We're united. Verse 4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. I don't know if there's any connection going from prisoners to marriage. I don't think so. 
I kid, but you know what? Marriage is, marriage is under attack. Do you, do you understand to the degree that marriage is under attack? I mean, it's, it's made fun of. I mean, marriages are, you know, the wife is the ball and chain. The husband is lazy and, you know, the, the person who's no fun, whatever. And so there's the marriage, the idea of marriage is even under attack. And I don't think that's by mistake. Statistics tell us that one in two marriages will fail. You know what? I don't believe that. I think it's much higher. And the reason I say that is because the world's caught on. Why get married? What's the point? So instead, what the world's doing is they just, they just get together and they live together. And then they split up and then they go and find someone else and live together with them. And then they get split up and they go somewhere else and they live together with them for a while. And all those split ups aren't counted in the statistics. Because they're not recognized as marriages, even though they're living as if they're married. And so really, I think it's higher. Maybe, maybe two out of every three, or maybe at least three out of every four unions end in divorce. And it's, again, no surprise. Because what marriage is meant to represent, marriage is, to, is the covenant. I mean, God talks about how we are the bride of Christ. It's the illustration to you and I, so that when we read these passages, we say, oh, when he talks about that we're the bride, we're loved by God, we're secure, we're safe, we're accepted, we're one. But when you look at that passage and compare it to the world standard of marriage, that doesn't look so secure. And so what ends up happening now is Satan, our enemy, has come to undermine marriage, to attack marriage. I was working with a couple last week, and, um, and she was thinking about leaving this guy. She wanted nothing to do with him. And, and, and her reasoning was, well, all we do is argue. All we do is fight. Wouldn't it be better for us to leave so that our girl, our baby girl, doesn't see us fight anymore? And I said, absolutely not. Well, what do you mean? How could it be better for her to see, them, uh, see us fighting? I said, well, here's the message that you're sending. I will love you as long as we get along. But the moment we don't get along, then I will leave you. That's the message you will send to your child. And it dawned on her. Because she's the child of a divorce. And for the first time, she understood why she felt that. She never realized that she felt that I'm only going to be okay as long as you love me. But the moment you don't love me, then I'm in trouble. That's because that was the message that was taught to her when her parents divorced. So in marriages now, there's great benefit to Satan to destroy them. Because now we carry that idea and that concept into our relationship with God. And so God, you will love me as long as I keep you happy. But the moment I don't keep you happy, then you will leave me. You will abandon me. And so I better strive, I better work, I better struggle. And we can never enter into the rest and the security of what we have with God. So the writer here says... Marriage is to be held in honor. It's to be looked well upon among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. Don't ruin your marriages. Love your spouse. spouse. Love them. Accept them. And so people might say, but you you don't understand. My spouse, not the easiest person to love. Again, I maybe not understand, know your spouse, but I know the one who lives inside you. I know Jesus, and I know the power that He has and what He's capable of. And regardless of what your spouse is like or how they act or how they treat you, 
Jesus in you can handle it. He can do it. There's a, a great quote from Frank Friedman, and uh, it was so good, I, I, I thought I'd just play it for you, rather than me rehearse it or trying to send the same message. He just does a, such a great job explaining this quote. So, There was a, several years ago, there was a leader, he's a vice president of a major organization, Christian organization in our country, and he had visited me in my office, and I won't tell you the organization because I want to protect the man, but I do have to share this story because it, it emulates, this is a Christian leader gang. You know, this is not some person in the pew. This is a guy who's supposed to know his stuff. And he walked into my office and he looked around like this, everything on the bookcases, and he's, huh. And I said, huh? I said, what are you hearing about? He said, well, look at this. Look at the books, the tapes, the videos. The church has more resources than it's ever had in its history. And your point is? Divorce is at an all-time high in the church. It used to be that the world divorced, but never the church. Then the church divorced, but never the missionaries. Now we've got our missionaries divorcing and coming home from the field. Why is this happening when we have all these resources? This is gray hair. So I said, what do you think? <laughs> Obviously, that was a man on an agenda. I wanted to hear what he had to say. I think it's because there's no prophet in the land. Nobody preaching on sin anymore. We're all so eager to restore these people that nobody's holding up the standard. There's no holiness anymore in the pulpit. That's what I think. He said, what do you think? I said, well, I don't think that. He said, well, what do you think? I said, well, I think that our churches are doing with their people the same way, thing that our prisons in our country does with its criminals. He said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, let me illustrate it first. Ephesians 5.25, what's it say? He said, well, husbands love your wives. I said, okay, good. I said, do you do that? He said, well, yes, I do. I said, you stench in the nostrils of God. Now, please understand, I don't treat counselees that way. <laughs> but this is a Christian leader. He said, what are you talking about? I said, what you just said. Finish the verse. Husbands, love your wives the way Jesus loves the church. Do you mean to tell me that you actually love your wife the way Jesus loves the church? He said, well, I try. I said, oh my God, you're even worse than I thought. He said, what do you mean? He said, what do you do with that verse? I said, I confess that I am an utter failure at being able to love my wife the way Jesus loves the church. Which throws me into dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ so that he can love my wife through me in a way that only he can as I yield and trust him by faith. I said, my friend, haven't you ever read your Bible? You're trying to love your wife the way Jesus loves the church. Jesus is God. You're trying to love like God. Genesis chapter 3, and the day you eat, you will be like God. You are living out of the economy of the fall and putting the name of Jesus on it and sanctifying it in the church. Now I'll explain to you what I meant. In our country, what do we do? We take criminals. And we educate them. And what do you get? Educated criminals. In the church, we take a bunch of prideful, independent people. And we educate them with the Bible. And what do you get? Biblically educated, pridefully independent people. People who know so much but cannot do what they know. And what is it that they cannot do? They cannot love.
cannot love. People who understand doctrine, don't get me wrong, doctrine is not the problem. Doctrine is wonderful. Love the doctrine because what doctrine is supposed to do is what? There is no life for you and I in this book. Do you understand that? There is absolutely no life for you and I in the pages of this book. Why do I say that? Because that's what Jesus said. In John 5, verses 39 and 40, He says to the Pharisees, You search the Scriptures looking for eternal life, but you do not find them. And the reason is because these Scriptures, Jesus says, is they point to Me. And I'm eternal life, but you're not willing to come to Me. And so what ends up happening is we study the doctrine, but we never discover and realize what the doctrine is trying to do is point us to Jesus that we might live and experience life in Him. And when we do, then we can come and we can do what Ephesians 5.25 says, which is, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. I can't, but Lord, you can. And so I trust you, I depend upon you for you to love my wife. And wives, respect your husbands unconditionally. How easy is that? It's just as difficult as, as husbands loving their wives. So you can have the same response. I can't do it, but Lord, you in me, you can. And so I'm going to trust you to do it instead. And if we did that, how would our marriages turn out? We'd be the envy of the world. Yes? What would be scripture verse, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God? Yeah, but what's the Word of God doing? It's pointing me to Jesus. You see, there are many great speakers, but there's a difference between a great speaker and a great teacher. Great speakers have wonderful, eloquent voices and, and they can, you know, great illustrations and wonderful PowerPoint. They're easy to listen to. Nobody falls asleep listening to them. And those are great speakers. But then you have a great teacher. And a great teacher is someone that will point you to the face of Jesus. And so what's the Word of God doing? It's pointing us to the face of Jesus. It's leading us to Him. Because He is the Word of God. That's the point. So this book leads me to life. It's not life in and of itself. See, many Christians, they look at their Bible as their oxygen pack, and that's what's going to provide me my breath. No. No. You hold that in your hand, Jesus is on your back as your oxygen tank. He's your life. He's your life. Verse 5 and 6. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For He Himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we are confident, so that we confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Remember what who's reading this the very first time. These are Jewish Christians whose possessions are being robbed from them. And he says, Be content with what you have, namely, be content with the fact that all you've had has been taken away. I mean, in our society, for many people, their God is money. Because they believe money is the key to freedom. Money is the key to power. Money is the key to happiness. I mean, you turn on the TV and almost you can't not watch one of those lottery commercials. And yet, how many lottery winners are actually happy? I know multi-millionaires that are miserable. That are absolutely miserable. Because money does not buy you happiness. So what he's saying is be content with what you have. Well, what do you have? 
The Lord's my helper. I've got Jesus. What more is there? What we need to come to understand is the guy who has Jesus and everything in this world has no more than the guy who has Jesus and nothing. Do you understand that? The guy with Jesus and everything in this world has nothing more than the guy that has Jesus and nothing. Because Jesus is everything. Jesus' value is limitless. And when you've got Jesus, that's all you need. The Lord's my helper. I've got it. So I won't be afraid. What, what can man do to me? I can be content. I can have joy. I can have peace. No matter what man does to me. Because Jesus is greater than them all. And so don't be bound to your money. So Father, what do you want to do with it? This your money. Now, don't get me wrong here. God's not after your money. He doesn't need it. A, He doesn't really care about money that whole much. But B, if he did, he's got all the money in the world. So he doesn't need your money. You know what he's after? Your heart. He's after you. And the whole reason here is don't let money get in the way of him getting a hold of your heart. That's what it's all about. Don't let money be your idol. And then verses 7 and 8, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their doctrine. Imitate their traditions. Imitate the manner of which they lived, the songs they sang, the way they talked. Is that what it says? Imitate their faith. Imitate their trust, their dependence. And again, just a short few pages before was the great hall of faith. These great men and women of God of Israel's history. And that's who he's referring to. Remember those people and consider how they lived and imitate their faith. Their their faith, not their behavior, but their trust. Why? Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He hasn't changed. In the same way those people trusted in Jesus and trusted in God, we're to do the same. Except we have the advantage over them. Whereas for them, the Holy Spirit would come upon them and then leave them at times. We have the Holy Spirit where? In us. And He's not going anywhere. For I will never leave you nor forsake you. Verse 9, Do not be carried away by very and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Again, it's not doctrine or principles, but by a person. See, grace is a person. Grace is Jesus. In Titus 2, verses 11 and 12, it says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Whose grace? It's Jesus. And then in verse 12, it goes on to say, And that grace, Jesus, will now instruct us in godliness and holiness and how to live right. So be strengthened by Jesus. Seek Him. And don't be led away by varied and strange teachings. You see, our whole mission here at Crossways to Life is to teach you one thing. Jesus Christ and the cross. That I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. That's everything that we want to teach in that verse right there. And we're going to teach it 90 different ways if we have to. Because that's the heart of the gospel. Paul says, I've determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I will boast in nothing except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, where I have been crucified unto the world and the world unto me. That's at the heart of it. That's the key central message of the gospel. Jesus Christ and the cross. So don't be led away from that. 
by all kinds of varied and strange teachings. Let that be the central message that's on your heart. Jesus Christ and the cross. What happened to Him and you together there? For them, it was some foods. Because remember, as Jews, they had all kinds of food restrictions, what to eat and what not to eat. You, you know, you could maybe eat, eat certain you know, lamb and so forth, but you've got to make sure you eat lamb from the right butcher because it's got to be kosher. And so he's saying to them, don't worry about that. So all it does is just leads to nothing. There's no value in those things. And then in verses 10 to 14, again, another in, uh, uh, exhortation to not return to the law. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people through His own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to Him, outside the camp, bearing His reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Sounds really complicated maybe, but it's really straightforward and simple. He's talking about the the Jews, the unbelievers. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Those who are still looking to Moses in the Old Covenant, they don't get to eat from the tabernacle that we get to eat from. Because we get to go to the heavenly one. They're still stuck in the earthly one. And so then he says, what happened to those Old Testament sacrifices is they would sacrifice the animal, the lamb, they go take it outside and burn it. And then as they come back home, no, it's burnt. It's stuck out there. And so what he's saying about for Jesus now, Jesus was crucified outside the city on Calvary's hill. And so that's outside the city. And so we're called to leave the old city, called to leave the old covenant, the old way of living by formulas and rules, and never come back. It's not get saved by grace, live by law. It's saved by grace and live by grace. It's saved by Jesus and live in Jesus. For just as you have been, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in Him. It says in Colossians two six. And so what we're in, exhorted to do is to leave the old way of living and exit outside where Jesus is, even if that means that there will be reproach. It's okay, because we're seeking something greater that's in this world. We're seeking something of far greater value. So play the long game. Don't play the short game. Don't be so focused on now that you forget that there's an eternity, that there's something far more valuable waiting for us. Listen to what Father wants to say to you. And then beginning in verses 15 to 19, he lists some sacrifices that please God. Through Him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. Do not neglect doing good and sharing for those with such sacrifice God is, God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this, so that I may be restored to you sooner. Now there's four things I want you to see here, that are the sacrifices or acts of service that he says please God. The first one is praise Him. Praise Him. I mean, have we seen anything in this book of Hebrews in these last five weeks of studying that, that earn God praise? Yeah. He's better than anything you can imagine. He's always with you. He's absolutely forgiven you. 
that alone should just knock your socks off. That you are forgiven. Don't let truth like that become mundane. Don't, don't forget what it means. Like the first day you heard it. And the joy and the tears that are brought to your eyes when you knew that you are forgiven. That you have been sanctified, you have been made perfect, that you have been made complete. It's a done deal. And now God's bringing it all to fruition. That's good news. That's stuff to praise Him about. That you're righteous. That you're under the new covenant now and not the old covenant. You're not under an achieving system, but now a receiving system where you live from the life of Christ who now resides inside of you. Those are things to praise Him about. And praise Him can take the form of a song, a poem, whatever. There's all sorts of ways to praise Him. But praise Him. The next one is good works. And do not neglect doing good and sharing. You know, sometimes in the economy of grace, people have looked at work as being a bad thing. And it's not. Ephesians 2.10 You were created for good works that you might walk in them. You're His workmanship for that purpose. There's nothing wrong with good works. In fact, if you understand grace as being, I don't have to work anymore, then you don't understand grace. Now it's true, you don't have to work anymore to please God. But that doesn't mean there's no work to be done. There's a lot of work to be done. Because you know what? You're still here. And Jesus is inside of you. And so He wants to work. He wants to do things. Even before the fall, all the way back in creation, in Genesis 1, there was work to be done. God instructed man, Adam and Eve, go look after the garden. Go populate the world. There's work to be done there. But the work was good. And the work was being done from Jesus. So it's not resting from work. It's now working from rest. Working from resting and abiding in Jesus. And that's what's to be done. And that pleases God. The third one is obedience and respect of authority. Again, we live in a society where authority is something to be spat on. Where we, we disrespect police officers and the governments and, and all kinds of authority. But understand this. God is the one responsible for all authority. He's the one that put them in that place. So whether you agree with the politics of the, the prime minister of the day or the premier of the day, you still ought to respect the office. you got to respect the position he holds. Because guess who put him in that position? God. So if you have a problem with how the election turned out, go talk to God about it. Because He's the one in charge. And so we're to respect them. But also, in this case here, it's respect your leaders in church. You know, pastors have probably the worst job in the kingdom. Because they are under intense scrutiny and intense attack from the enemy. Because if you can take down the pastor, if you take down the shepherd of the, of the, the under-shepherd of the flock, then you just take down the whole flock. And people now have reasons not to follow, follow Christ, and, and they just, well, there's, you know, all Christians are fake, look at this guy. And so they're under an intense attack from the enemy. But you know who else is attacking them? They're getting friendly fire in their back. Because after the, the, you know, they preach the sermon, then the rest of the church has them for lunch. And they just go after the pastor and so forth. And, and I'm not saying you can't be critical of what you hear. You need to be critical of what you hear. But you're critical in the sense that you're critical of what you're intaking and in terms of what you're hearing, but you're not critical of the person. You're not critical of the guy who's preaching. 
But you need to be critiquing the message. Be a Berean. Go search out the Scriptures and see if what you're hearing is true. But continue to submit and obey those leaders because God has placed them in authority. Now, if they're bad leaders, then you don't have to continue to submit yourself. Then go find some other leaders that are good leaders. But once you're there, submit yourself to them. That pleases God. And then finally, prayer. You know, if there's one topic that I am absolutely, you know, don't understand in the Bible, it's prayer. And I don't think, if I read books on prayer for the next 15 years straight, I still wouldn't understand prayer. I don't get it. I don't understand how it all works. I mean, I know enough that, that the power is not in the prayer itself. It's sort of like faith. The power isn't in faith itself. It's in whose you're putting the faith into. Who are you trusting and depending upon? And so the power of prayer is not prayer itself, but the one you're praying to. And so I understand that the power is in in God, but yet there's something about your prayers and there's something about my prayers that do impact people, that do make a difference. And I don't understand that, but it does matter. And he says, pray for us, especially as the time grows near, he goes on in the next verse to say. Pray for us. You know, Jacqueline and I... We covet your prayers. We, we long for your prayers. Pray for her and I. We need your prayers. Because again, we're under attack. Every day, we walk through these doors. Because we're fighting for people's hearts. So pray for us. Pray for one another. Tell people you're praying for them. And actually mean it. Don't just say, well, I'll pray for you. And then not pray for them. Actually pray for them. Again, I don't know how that matters, but it matters. It does make a difference. It's important. And you know what? It pleases God. He enjoys to hear them. Well, that brings us then to the the final part of chapter 13 and the final part of the book, which is a closing benediction. And then he also has some final greetings um, from the people in in Italy and so forth. But this, this final benediction is powerful. He says, Now, after all that I've said, After all that I've explained to you now, the God of peace, the God of peace, the the one who is the source of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd. See, in John 10.10, or John 10, Jesus was just the good shepherd. And he was the good shepherd because he was willing to lay down his life. But now that he's been raised from the dead, now that he's been brought back from, from the dead, he's now the... Great shepherd. Greek word megos, where we get mega from. He's the mega shepherd. He's the great shepherd now of the sheep. Through the blood of the eternal covenant. We have a new covenant, an eternal covenant that is from His blood, His life. That's the currency that we're trading on. That's the power of it now, His life. Remember, the life is in the blood. Even Jesus our Lord, equip you, may He equip you in every good thing. You see, as Madrian Thomas said, that Jesus is the power of what He wants you to do. He will enable you to do what He's asked you to do. He will equip you with His life to do it. May He equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us, living in us. It's Him doing the working. Not I, but Christ who lives. That which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, of His strength, of His power. 
to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus is... You don't sound convinced. Jesus is... Better. So live by faith. Trust Him. Depend upon Him. Let Him live in through you and I. Let's pray and then there's one more thing I want to do. Heavenly Father, You are so incredible that You have blessed us with this great new covenant, this new life that we have in You. A life that we can run to You. A life where we can experience intimacy with You. A life that we can know You. The real, true, living God. I thank You, Father, for the time we've had together. Thank You for the wonder, the the incredible doctrine that we've learned. But Father, may that doctrine lead us to Your heart, to Your face. May we know You now and experience life in You like we never thought it was possible. And Father, that may mean more suffering, more brokenness. But Father, may we be willing to walk that path knowing what awaits us. That we'd be willing to pursue a greater city than what is present here on earth. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One more thing I want to do. When I started preparing for this uh, course and study on Hebrews, I wanted to end it with a blessing. And, and the reason was in part because in Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith, where all these great men and women of God do something, there's only one thing that's repeated. Every other act they do is unique and separate, but there's one act that's repeated. Not that there was a blessing. Jacob blessed his son, or sorry, Isaac blessed Jacob and Jacob blessed Joseph's sons. There is a blessing there. And so there, that aspect of blessing was repeated. And I thought that was significant and important. So I want to bless you guys. I want to say a blessing to you. And so as I began to, to search and prepare and say, Father, this is, this is a big deal to say a blessing. This isn't, this isn't something you just kind of whip off. This is something you think about. And I started thinking and praying and and Father, what do you want to say here? And how do you want to word it? And what do, you, what do you want to communicate to these people? And you know what He led me to? Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. So let me read it to you as a blessing over your hearts. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal, Christ, eternal covenant, Jesus our Lord, May He equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. Through Jesus Christ, to Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. May you be blessed with that. May you go now and be the church. May you go and share the life of Christ with everyone you meet. Thanks for coming. God bless you guys. This message was recorded by Crossways to Life. It is the desire of Crossways to Life to know Jesus deeper and disciple Christians to experience life in Him through the message of the cross. For more information about our ministry, upcoming courses and events, or how to contact us, please visit our website at www.crosswaystolife.com.
www.ghostsofthecoast.org.